I know a river looping through a land of old bones. To the north is basalt country. It was there in that time before time dissected days in this place that the callow earth groaned and heaved in shallow slumber. It was enough to make mountains tear their bellies out and spew their fiery innards into valleys. Today, a distant line of sultry hills is all that's left. It must be this decides where rivers run, north to the gulf, or south across the silt of an ancient ocean on a long and lazy journey to a barren lake. Helen Avery, poet and pastoralist from Nogo Station near Longreach in Western Queensland. Hello and welcome to Hindsight and the second and final part of our history of the culture of fresh water using the path of Cooper's Creek from the headwaters of the Thompson to its end at Lake Eyre as our route through a watery obsession. I'm Gretchen Miller. Last week we looked at the mythology of the inland sea the predilections of the explorers, and we took a trip down the Cooper itself, meeting some of the pastoralists there. We finished with the birth of a new industry, hydroengineering, and the enthusiasm of 19th century artists and writers for altering river flow to bring plenty to the barren inland. But despite the dreams, the deserts remained deserts. In today's program, we'll see how Australians attempted to use water to transform them into productive environments for food and for settlement, and how we employed moral arguments to make water a political tool. In 1886, Alfred Deakin, then the Victorian government's Minister for Water Supply, took control of water rights. Dams were built and water agencies were put in place that called themselves Water Conservation Commissions and it wasn't about saving water for natural purposes. Here's Paul Sinclair, director of the Healthy Rivers campaign, Environment Victoria. Deacon was a pretty interesting character. He sort of had a really interesting religious faith that I'm sure fired his devotion to irrigation, that he was uh, believed he could communicate with the dead and a range of other things. And Victoria was the first state really to undertake large-scale irrigation works in the um, late part of the 19th century. He introduced the, um, the Water Act in 1886, I think it was. He really brought together a range of sort of semi-crackpot types who were floating around Victoria and gave the debate around irrigation some real toughness, you know, some real facts and figures and engineering oomph. He did trips to the United States and India, seeing what best practice was over in those countries, what they could do over there, tried then to apply those lessons to Victoria. He was instrumental in driving uh, irrigation development in Victoria and Australia. Who were the Chaffee brothers who he encouraged and supported? The Chaffee brothers were a couple of uh, Canadian brothers who came out in the late part of the 19th century from Canada They'd done some um, enormously successful construction of irrigation colonies in the um, Western United States. And, I mean, this is where your point earlier about how irrigation's tied up with a sense of morality. The Chaffees were um, temperance people and they wanted to create virtuous cities built on irrigation that were dedicated to, uh, to doing God's work. So there was, you couldn't get a drink in town and uh, people were very virtuous, so that was the, uh, the aim. Deacon saw the work they did. He made them an offer to say the Victorian government would purchase a, a heap of land for them up in northern Victoria around Mildura if they could get irrigation up and working in Victoria. And they did that. There's a bit of a kerfuffle about the government giving these uh, no-good American entre entrepreneurs free land. Even though they were Canadian? They were Canadian, but everyone called them Americans. And mm. um, they uh, really started Mildura, the work that they did. Uh, it went broke after a few years, after about 10 years, I think, it went broke. But it, it kick-started irrigation up in the Mildura area. They had the experience of applying, you know, large-scale irrigation works and building those works, and, uh, you know, they were pretty bloody successful when they did. Oh, 
Forgive us, O Lord, that we have so indolently and irreligiously broken thy natural laws and despised the indications of thy will in the time past. And give us grace, we beseech thee, so to lay to heart thy present and grievous and most just chastisement, that we may bestir ourselves to conserve and employ thy precious gift of water to the fertilizing of our fields, the relief of our necessity, the replenishing of our land with prosperous and happy people, and the glorifying of thy holy name. James Morehouse, Anglican Bishop of Melbourne, the age 1882. There was a long tradition of praying for rain in drought years. It was something which wasn't unique to Australia, but in Australia's particularly variable, fluctuating kind of climate, it was a practice which became quite commonplace. But I guess as ideas about science and about natural forces changed, increasingly people began to think that this wasn't actually something which was really within God's province and it wasn't something which one should seek from him and equally that if one did want to in some kind of way counter the the effects of this highly variable fluctuating climate the only proper thing to do was to take human action and actually build dams and irrigate whatever one wanted to do one oneself and so from the 18 1870s there was a very intense debate and it really happened every time there was a a major drought about the propriety of praying for rain and the arguments were not just um, ones for example between I guess believers and atheists or agnostics these arguments were if anything more intense between people of faith all these questions about how colonists should cope with an environment which from at least the 1840s they had recognised fluctuated incredibly fast from intense droughts to big floods. Those debates were ones which were not confined to specialists. They really engaged the whole community and as part of that you get those kind of responses by people like Lawson or Patterson or, or W.C. Pigney by poets and, and artists, but you get these kind of debates which involve religious leaders, which they partly express by someone like Morehouse writes long letters to major newspapers like the Melbourne Argus or to the Melbourne Age in which he puts his arguments about why praying for rain is inappropriate or he will deliver a major public lecture which is then published and which he expects to be published. And then clergymen on the other side, in, in, in Morehouse's case, opposing Roman Catholic clergymen, will respond and they will authorise their own uh, days of prayer, which the Anglican Morehouse wasn't doing, but they will also write to the newspapers and ordinary members of the public will respond as well. So these issues, in a genuinely substantial way, were occupying the whole community. Environmental lawyer and art historian Tim Bonnyhady. Now it may or may not be a coincidence that the huge enthusiasm for irrigation and arguments over water rights sprang up around the same time that Federation was being discussed. The waters of the Murray were being squabbled over even at the turn of last century by Victoria, South Australia and New South Wales. But water harvesting, irrigation, was unstoppable. And this was partly because the desire to divert water was closely connected to Australia's need to mark its ownership of the land and thus to create a nation. I have used the word desert often enough in these pages but mainly in the dictionary sense of desertion. There is water everywhere, could it but be conserved. The desert soils are rich. Already miracles of irrigation are redeeming the waste. Even as I write, the contours of the map are coming clearer. The aeroplane, the radio and the motor car are changing the face of nature. And the king tide of colonisation is setting to the full. Ernestine Hill the Great Australian Loneliness, 1937. Australians were anxious 
about the fact that the centre of Australia was dry. Now, if you think about the centre of Australia as it was thought of as the turn of the century, not just talking about the desert in the middle, you're actually talking about the corridor that reaches up into the Northern Territory. That was known as the Open North, or by the 1930s as the vast open spaces. And it was an open door to Asia. And there was a strong view, which Deakin held, and most of the irrigators held, that our best defence was to develop that country. The implication was, based on a kind of racial theory, that white people couldn't live in deserts and they couldn't live in, in tropics, and Asian people could. And this led to a kind of anxiety that if we didn't do something to transform those places, then the Asians would come in and take it. So irrigation policy is linked to defence. You, you make Australia secure against Asians by developing it. So federation has these two sides to it, nation building on the one hand, but a kind of fear of isolation expressed in imperialism on the other, partly because we don't believe that we can be a whole nation because we're not yet a whole country, and we won't be a whole country until we've irrigated. J.W. Gregory's great book was called The Dead Heart of Australia, published in 1906, and it recounted his journey in the high summer and heat wave of uh, 1901 and 2, when he dragged various of his geological students out into the desert. And he couldn't help noting, by the way, that Aboriginal people somehow didn't uh, withstand the sun to the same extent because they lurked in the shadows. He was proud of his ability to survive the sun and he was in quest of fossilised bones and he was also looking at a land that he recognised had once perhaps been forest, had once been a sea and now was a desert and he was hoping that somehow he could reconfigure these elements in the future. He saw a land where water lay below it in the Great Artesian Basin and water lay above it tantalisingly in leaden clouds which seem to be forever drifting over. So he sees an arid landscape sandwiched between two layers of water almost. One of the things that he mused about was, well, how can we get that water from the underground basin or that water from the clouds to uh, somehow animate the land? He also considered seriously but dismissed a plan which had been suggested since the 1880s to flood Lake Eyre from the sea, that is to build a canal from Spencer's Gulf up to Lake Eyre and thereby bring seawater into the heart of central Australia and hopefully change the climate. So here's an intelligent and thoughtful geologist at the turn of the century looking at inland Australia and although he calls his book The Dead Heart, he thinks it can once again be made the living heart because that's what it once was. It literally meant that, that Lake Eyre was a heart, like a heart muscle, that was dead, and that all those arteries that come out of it, which are like the rivers, which are the rivers, uh, were dead and, and withered. Now, if you convince a people that their nation is a kind of body, and in the middle of it there is a dead heart, that is a very, very chilling and dispiriting idea. And... So you can see why it's hard for Australia to be independent because it's a nation with a dead heart. Mm. And it's also easy to see why, if you are an Australian nationalist like Deakin, you would be saying, well, we don't want to tolerate this. We're not going to put up with this idea of a dead heart. We're going to transform Australia. So Deakin is inclined to say the deserts are an illusion. There's not really a desert there. We know every time it rains, there's all this fertile garden and you know, wonderful lushness that pops up. So that's what's really there. The garden is really there. And it's only for the anomaly of uh, the lack of rain and rivers that uh, we can't see what nature is really like in the centre of Australia. Historian and broadcaster Michael Cathcart, and before him, historian Tom Griffiths. When the rivers of the Cooper flood, the physical and psychological experience of pastoralists today is much as it would have been for their forebears. Here's Mary Emmett and her son, Angus, who is generation three of what is now four on their property, Noonbar. Noonbar's by the verge of Mod Creek. Waterloo's on, on the river, but... Oh, it's just beautiful. Can you describe it? It's peaceful. Desperately peaceful. Beautiful trees all along it. The Thompson has a very big waterhole at Waterloo that's just lovely. But there are good waterholes on the verge of Mod. 
one of the most magnificent things I've ever seen was, when was the big flood? 74. 74, was it? No, it was after Angus was married. It must have been in the 90s. And four of us boated into Lockhearn and we were three quarters of an hour from the edge of the flood into the homestead on the edge of the river. It was the most peaceful, most beautiful thing I've ever seen with the shadows and the reflections and, ah, oh, you couldn't believe it was the same land. It looks like an inland sea with all these trees sticking out. <laughs> because it's fairly large expanse of water, the water out here is not what most people think of as water. It's a very dirty brown and it's always that way because the suspended material never settles. And you've got this huge sea of dirty brown water with bushes sticking out. And on every bush and tree they'll be covered with centipedes and spiders and grasshoppers. And they're all clinging to anything they can get hold of. And they don't predate on each other to any degree because they're just all intent of hanging around until the water gets down and they can make it back to ground. Did you always have enough water to garden? Well, I used to garden regardless, even with everyone telling me to stop because there seemed no point in stopping before before you had to. And the only time it got desperate, it rained the night the dam went dry, didn't it? Yeah, he carted water and we kept it going then. We kept it going. Because it seems to me that in this country you'll find most of the men will say the joy of coming home to green after a drought. Just to come home and find a garden, a bit of, bit of lushness, is worth carting for. Mary and Angus River is free of irrigation, but remains so despite impassioned plans to alter its flow. As irrigation schemes took hold on the Murray-Darling in the early 20th century, looming high in the national consciousness were the larger, more grandiose plans to make the Cooper flow continuously through to Lake Eyre. These came from the engineer, J.C. Bradfield, who went on to design the Sydney Harbour Bridge and commanded much admiration, as well as Ian Idrius, a best-selling author of the time. The plans caught the popular imagination and held tremendous sway, and echoes of these schemes still rebound today in the proposals of broadcasters John Laws and Alan Jones to drought-proof Australia. Richard Kingsford, Principal Research Scientist with the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service. The Bradfield scheme was a grand plan. It was a visionary plan and remains a visionary plan. But it really was about, again, dealing with those rivers that were being wasted out at sea. So we have all these massive rivers on the east coast and, and the Gulf and northwestern Western Australia, which are gushing water of useless value out to sea. So the Bradfield scheme was designed, in fact, to take that water and put it into the inland river systems. Uh, and it was designed about 1920s, 1930s, and the idea being that for the Cooper system, you'd take the, the water out of the Tully and the Burdekin, and with a, a whole series of canals, you'd put that straight into the top end of the Cooper. And of course, it, the rest would be history because you would have made the desert bloom. You would have put these immense amounts of water down through the river system and established incredible agriculture in that basin. Wasn't the idea that if you filled Lake Eyre or, or made it even bigger that you could actually change the climate? That's right. And so if, if in fact you had this great big body of water in Lake Eyre, it would have its own effect and produce rains that would dump on the Murray-Darling Basin. And one of the most ludicrous ideas was in fact to build this great channel down to Port Augusta and not put fresh water in, but put salt water into that system. And again, hope that the whole climate of the system would change. Once again, we saw last year, there were grand plans to resurrect the Bradfield scheme and in fact make the desert bloom again. And every time there's a drought, we haven't really got used to living in this country properly. We think somehow we can actually make 70% of the continent like the other 30% where we all live, you know, mm. lots of rain and forests. All should realise that we must do something with our wastewater. The interior of all Australia is crying out for it. And we allow this sea of fresh water to run to waste along our coasts every year. So there you have the great boomerang. To collect and divert the waters from the eastern and northern coasts of Queensland, to transport them to the dividing range and to the northern watershed, 
lift them up over it and drop them into the old river heads. The scheme will mean electrification of all waterfalls of Queensland and the generation of hydroelectric power where the waters will fall over the western watershed of the Great Dividing Range. This expenditure will give a livelihood to millions of people, creating cities with hundreds of thousands of homes for our industrial workers and homesteads and farms. The Great Boomerang may sound like a mad scheme, but with this idea to work on, far cleverer brains than mine will, I'm sure, make that water do the job I believe it can do. Ian Idris, The Great Boomerang, 1941. I was thinking about The Great Boomerang by Ian Idris and the way that's written and it seems to me it's a beguiling book. He's telling all sorts of stories as he leads towards the elucidation of what he calls the plan and of course the plan is the turning of those northeastern Queensland rivers inland to water the dead heart. But he approaches that plan through a whole series of stories which are about the human drama of the inland and particularly of the Lake Eyre Basin. These stories are all about madness, they're about being lost, wandering, circling people, going nowhere, shepherds, settlers, thieves, trying to cross the dead heart and getting lost. And it seems almost as if he's conjuring a great metaphor of the water. The water he sees as being lost in this great evaporation bowl, just running to nowhere. And similarly, people who venture into that great inland themselves seem to run to nowhere, themselves seem to get lost, themselves seem to turn around themselves in circles. And so it's a very clever and powerful argument which he is knowingly introducing to the, the greater public by reminding them of the, the sad, tragic, horrible human drama of the great outback. and. His message is, we can save the land, we can save the people, and all we have to do is add water. There's an interesting d distinction, actually, between America and Australia. When, when Americans use the word wilderness, they have always heard positive connotations in the word. To an American, the word wilderness evokes the idea of the wild. So the wilderness for an American is a... Uh, a place of cataracts and great forests and breathtaking views and rapids where you can go canoeing. That's the wilderness. It, it's bracing and it's teeming with life. Whereas for Australians, the word wilderness, until this recent change, until the 80s, wilderness tended to have more biblical connotations. It was a kind of bleak, dreadful place that you went to that was outside the city. It's the sort of place where Jesus went to be tempted, but not a place you'd like to hang around mm. in. And something indeed to be tamed and brought under control. And saved, in fact, from and itself. And saved, yeah. Mm. Well, to brought to life. Mm. To be brought to life. I mean, the wilderness for for Australians in the 19th century up until, you know, mid-20th mid, mid 20th century is a place of death. Oh, the locusts, uh, one of the curses, I've seen them that thick could nearly blotch the sun out flying over, you know, they're coming in waves, and it really blotch the sun, they strip everything in front of them. And, and don't you feel, how do you feel when you see those locusts oh, coming? Oh, you curse them, oh God, you hope they don't, they generally only in patches, they're not everywhere, but then there's a caterpillar plague, and every 11 years of a conditions right, you get a rat plague. And that 19, 1952 was a bad rat plague. It's just unreal, unbelievable, but they all travelled, and out in the country it just looks like miniature sheep pads, through the grass as far as you can, all travelling in one way. Why? Well, that's what. It, why every eleven years too? Why? Why? What's the phenomena? They start nearly all of them start in the territory, but a lot of years we don't get many because the conditions are not in favour. They've got to have the right conditions to breed and come on through, and they'll be bad. In our fruit trees, we had beautiful trees. They stripped it. You couldn't leave a thing outside. If you left a saddle out, there would be no leather left in the morning. They've eaten, even eaten through to get into sheds to lock door through an inch thick board. They've chewed and chewed till they've got in. And these damn, oh, they're horrible things. And you'd be sitting down at the dinner table and suddenly you feel something as a blooming rat chewing your foot or something. And you wake up at night, they'd be up on the bed chewing your hair, you know, and this is, oh, God, they're horrible. And suddenly you'll see a white rat amongst them. Within a week, the whole area, no sign of a rat left. What does it? What? Bruce Emmett, 
husband to Mary and father of Angus. Bruce lived for all of his 80-odd years at Noonbar on the Thompson River. The silence that was once unbroken, save for bird calls and the croaking of frogs, is now shattered by the continual roar of water rushing through the weir that spans the breast of the Murray. The waters of the mighty river have been harnessed so they no longer waste over the land in flood time or dry completely away, as in the 1914 drought. Alice Lapthorne, Walkabout Magazine, 1935. The sound issue is an interesting one because it's part of that challenge that the land throws out to us about who are you, what are you doing here, how long are you going to stay? You know, so the sounds of the environment, the quietness, the sound of kookaburras used to absolutely harass settlers out in the bush because they thought the kookaburras were laughing at them. Those sounds were threatening and challenging to their very presence in the landscape. So, I mean, anyone who sat on a riverbank, it throws you back inside yourself. You know, it's quiet. There are sounds that are difficult to understand. What made that noise? I don't know what made that noise. Something like a weir, you look at it, it's rushing, it's got a powerful sound, you've got water foaming, it, it's moving from upstream to downstream. There seems to be a progress in the way that water's moving. If you look at the Murray in its more natural areas, it doesn't surge from point A to point B, it meanders around creating these huge silent swirls. So the water rushing over the weir is a sign of us making our mark in this country, of us saying, this is our land. It's the same thing as putting a flag on a beach and saying, I claim this land for England. Building a weir and describing the water powering over it is the same thing. It's us saying, we're here, we control this land, and by God, it's going to do what we say. In the middle of the drought, it was unbelievable, because normally out in the bush, there's no such thing as silence. There's always birds or insects or something making a noise, but in the middle of the drought it was just total silence, there was nothing. Is that unnerving? It can be to some people. I enjoy the silence, but the silence can be very, very loud. <laughs> people have trouble coping with it if they're not used to it. There are times when I am tempted to think that all I need are the bare bones of my life and this, the austerity of a dry riverbed scribbling its way across half a continent etched in dust on parchment. You're listening to Hindsight on ABC Radio National and that was the poet and pastoralist Helen Avery. Now, not everybody supported the big irrigation push. There is a class of people who appear to believe that by denying the existence of certain of Australia's obvious disabilities, they are promoting the good of the Commonwealth. Such folk rival the proverbial ostrich. If they deny the presence of desert in Australia, they must surely deny it anywhere in the world. Speaking as an engineer, I should be sorry to see money wasted on large irrigation works in those portions of arid Australia. Irrigation is an extremely costly business, except under the most favourable conditions, and these certainly do not occur in our uninhabited areas. Thomas Griffith Taylor, 1923 and 1925. Well, some of them were laughed out of town, like Griffith Taylor in the end of the 1920s, when he was really preaching as a geographer the limits to settlement in inland Australia. He eventually abandoned Australia and went to the United States to continue his career there, partly because he felt his ideas weren't being taken seriously here and because people felt he was being unpatriotic in saying that there were limits to Australian settlement. He was being unpatriotic in saying that drought was a recurrent reality in Australia. He was being unpatriotic in saying that Australia could not sustain more than about 20 million people by the end of the 20th century. As it turns out, his prediction was amazingly um, good. But there were many who wanted to see uh, Australia, because of the size of the continent, as being able to sustain a population more like America, up to you know 100 and more million people. So when they looked at the inland, they saw the open spaces, they thought 
all we've got to do is add water, just add water, and you will change the nature of Australia. There's a guy, Simon Sharma, in a book called Landscape and Memory, who reckons that if you scratch the surface of the things in our advertising or in our popular culture, what you find is not banal superficiality. You actually see these connections to deep sort of cultural myths. So people in the 19th century would talk about making deserts bloom. Later, in the 1940s and 50s, people started talking about turning water into gold, which is the uh, title of Ernestine Hill's phenomenally successful book. And today, people still talk about turning water into gold. You just listen carefully. It'll often come up, in a way, about the economic values of water is the only thing that matters. Ernestine Hill's interesting because she's aware of the complexities of rivers. She talks about the rivers being in chains. But there's also a suggestion, I think, in her work and her contemporaries that, look, we know that we're losing fish. You know, We know that some of the forests are already dying in the 1930s and 40s. But in the 1930s and 40s, people just had a uh, profound belief in the power of science to heal all sickness. So they believed that, yeah, there were costs. Progress would exact costs on the environment but those costs could be alleviated by the work of science that, yeah, we'll lose a few of those things, but we'll fix it up by boffins in laboratories coming up with an answer. There's very much a moral tenor to this discussion. Very much so, because as people thought, those evil blackfellas, you know, all they did was wander around catching kangaroos and mussels and Murray Cod and Yallabelly. Part of the deal was that they had supposedly wasted the resources of this country. So... By transforming the land, by making it, in a way people believed they needed to complete God's unfinished work because everyone knew that people of British origin knew exactly what went on in the big G's mind. Developing irrigation was seen as part of a completion of an unfinished landscape that the Aboriginal people had supposedly wasted. We haven't heard from the Aboriginal custodians of the Cooper because there are very few Aboriginal people living there today and none who can speak for the place itself. But Aboriginal words that we use today for fresh water are far more telling than our simple word, river. Their talk very much, I think, is about the run of the river, the, the freshers that come down, the type of fish being caught that day. Aboriginal people had often measure distances in terms of so many waters how many water holes between um, A and B, and many of the words that we use to describe our wayward water are Aboriginal words, uh, words like warrumbles and billabongs and so on. And we perhaps um, find that river is not a very useful word in Australia because it does conjure this image of the, the ever-flowing uh, continuous stream, whereas what have we got? We've got ephemeral lakes, we've got dune fields, swales, anabranches, warrumbles, billabongs, flooded alluvial plains and so on. We've evolved a whole series of different words and phrases that describe a come-and-go kind of water that is sometimes there, sometimes not. It's sometimes there in apparent abundance and other times lurking below the surface or only promising a very occasional appearance. So, yes, we've had to um, evolve a very different language to deal with a very different reality. The white men, encouraged by a flight of parrots to the northwest, decided to push on. They ate crows and kangaroo rats, sucked moisture from parakelia, but they found no water, and soon there were only two horses left. When the last horse was near death, they shot it and drank from its jugular vein the last desperate measure of perishing men. And suddenly, the blacks were there again. Mary Durack, Kings in Grass Castles, 1959. Mary Durack in her Kings in Grass Castles tells a story about the Duracks uh, beginning one of their pastoral treks from Goulburn northwards into Queensland where they push beyond the Peru River and uh, the settlers find themselves in a land without water and their cattle stampede to their deaths in, in the last bog that smells of water and the settlers themselves are forced to drink the blood of their last horses to survive. But 
when they meet Aboriginal people, it's like their eyes are suddenly opened to a whole different way of travelling in this land. They're taken over to uh, small rocky outcrops where wells are revealed to them under caps of stone. They're fed and watered by the Aboriginal people and led back across the land via the waterholes to their own civilization. It's just an amazing contrast between ways of seeing water in the land. You're taught that when you're young. The creeks run here, there's a hill there, etc, etc. You sort of read the land and tracks. You're taught to read what the signs on the ground and everything else, but that's all gone now. We met Sandy Kidd from the property of Ordell last week. His family, the Hammonds, along with the Costellos, Durax and Tullys, were the first to settle along Cooper's Creek in the 1880s. I was taught by the old experienced stockmen, including my father and old Peter, oh, I not But you just watched them and they tracked and they'd say, oh, that's a bull or that's a whatever. But that, that's, everybody knew the skills because it was passed on to you. Now those, if they ride a horse, no tracking, they just sit there and wait for the aeroplane or the helicopter to bring them out. So all those bush skills are gone. Do people, like, people talk about living with the river. Can you say what, what it is like to understand the variability of, of the Cooper? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's written down at the bridge. Charles Sturt said he couldn't call it anything but a creek. But then the creek became 60 mile wide, but they mightn't happen again for eight years, nine years. It's, it's either a feast or a famine. How do you cope with that? Oh, well, you just do. I mean, if you know no different, you sort of cope with it, I suppose. It's... I never met my grandfather, but he said none of his offspring should buy land in inland Queensland or inland Australia unless they're on a river system. And it's not a bad hint either. Generations of families on the feeder rivers of the Cooper, like the Thompson, have forged strong connections to the landscape that were tested when cotton made it onto the scene in the mid-1990s. Julie Grove's family goes back to the explorer, Edward John Eyre, and a century ago, his relatives settled Hortonvale, where Julie and her husband Ian live. It's just part of my life. I don't know what it'd feel like to live away from it ever since I could remember. I sort of haven't lived very far away from the Thompson. Yeah, it's just like being part of the family, I think. I was thinking about it before, but yeah, that community, I suppose, for me, that affiliation would be those communities. If you live on the Thompson, you're sort of part of... You feel like you know. But, you, you, know. Will, you want to see your photos you take <laughs> of trees and water. Yeah, the trees. I suppose we used to go fishing with Dad when we were kids and like a couple of older fellas. So, yeah, like you always played around the river. So I think you... No, I can't remember anybody actually talking about it, but... You sort of play in the trees and that, you'd notice things. And what I really noticed when I come down here, I still remember the day Ian first took me into Windora and we come in from the eastern side and went across the Cooper. There was sort of green grass on the bank, but these huge white gum trees. Like we, I can't remember ever seeing anything like that on the Thompson up around Longridge. And that was a lasting impression and affection. But then once our kids got a little bit bigger and we started to walk around just not far from that or where we'd always taken from picnics. And there's huge old trees, I don't know, they must be centuries old, but all that's left is just a dead trunk and they're still on the riverbank and yeah, I take pictures of them. And I'm just amazed at the age and, and just the shapes they grow and the twists and turns, different colours. Um, took photos of them in sort of drought in good times um, so yeah I think that awareness is there that it's not it's been there that long it's not conscious what about you Ian what do you think if Julie's sort depends of... if I'm sticking the fence up after a flood or not with how I feel about it sometimes I wish I lived on that nice downs country that gets about six inches of water through every now and then yeah you know I think it never gets boring anyway like there's still Little bits of here you come along when you're mustering, you, you don't think you've ever been there before. Like, 
and it all changes. What do you think of um, Julie's photo taking photographs and stuff of it? I go crooked, but then if I find something interesting tree, I'll take it back and take a photo. So I suppose <laughs> there are some queer trees down there, queer looking trees. The Cooper was the last stand for preserving the integrity of natural river systems. In the mid-1990s, a cotton company at Curra River applied to take water from Cooper's Creek. They wanted 42,000 megalitres a year, which amounted to 1% of the Cooper's annual average flow. But average and annual have no meaning when it comes to the Cooper, whose unpredictable cycles are much greater than a year. Given that cotton demands regularity and the cooper is somewhat less than regular, ecologists and graziers predicted disaster for both environment and industry. While previously there had been much argument about the impact of grazing on properties around Cooper's Creek, environmentalists and pastoralists had a common foe when they battled the proposal and forced the Queensland Government to prevent workable water extraction from Kararriva in the year 2000. Cotton was tried on and off all through the early part of this century, but never really took off until it got into the Namoi. And we had Californian immigrants that came across and said they had had similar sort of climates and, and they could in fact establish cotton there. And that really occurred in the 1960s. It's a plant that really thrives in dry conditions. And so if you can then just supply the root zone with water, you basically have everything made and it does extremely well in that arid climate. So the more recent ability of people to, in fact, capture those floods that come down the river system into big off-river storages has allowed people to develop on river systems that we never really thought we'd ever be able to see cotton established. In the 1960s, cotton was well established in the Namoi Valley. By the 1970s, it was going into the Guaida and Macquarie Valleys. By the 1980s and 1990s, it had gone north to the border rivers and to the Condamine Ballon and was then beginning to spread in the early to mid-1990s into the Warrego, which is the second last westward flowing river in the Murray-Darling and is, as we speak, starting to develop in some of the Gulf rivers, like the Flinders rivers, re-establishing itself on the Ord and in some of the southern rivers were starting to see more development of cotton, particularly on systems like the Lachlan, down the bottom end of that river system. Again, people are able to capture these so-called flood flows and put them into the dams. And it was, of course, in the, in the 90s that the grand plan was to actually take cotton outside the Murray-Darling and start trialling it in the Cooper. And that's when the, the, the great push came on to, in fact, get irrigation well and truly started on a grand scale. Uh, at Kararriva. One of the favourite expressions I've heard is pumping the bubble, which is as the river comes down in its flood, you can actually take all that bubble out into your off-river storages. That was, if you like, the great step forward in terms of water resource development because it allowed people for the first time to conquer our inland rivers. And more importantly, I guess, it could be done privately. Uh, we di people didn't have to rely on the government to do it right for them. And in fact, there were so many loopholes uh, as to doing it privately in so much as you didn't even have to pay for the water. There was obviously great economic sense to actually develop rivers. You know, the country had just go back to um, man-made desert, I suppose. The, the amount of water they wanted to put into ring tanks and you can have no rain here. If it's tampered with it and we don't get the water from up the top while the country goes off, given it 10 years, those beautiful lakes down there would have been clay beans. This is a very delicate country. And if you treat it as such, it'll go on forever and support people. Best fattening country in the world. It does a kilo and a half a day. We don't want government people. We don't want no old buggers coming here telling us what to do. And I told the minister, I said, our biggest danger of that country is government interference and people coming in telling us what to do. We've had a sustainable existence out here for a hundred years, our family and Kidman, and look, if we were going to wreck it, we'd wreck it by now. 
because we've learned from generation to generation. But the Aboriginals and the European settlers have looked after this country. This is why everybody's coming and saying, oh, the last, last frontier. It's the last frontier because we've looked after it. These days, environmental experts are beginning to acknowledge that the practices of graziers are not so impactful on the landscape as was first thought. At the same time, graziers find their own practices changing. I think there's been, there's been more acceptance of the variability. There used to be the attitude that the good seasons were the norm with dry seasons in between. Now we realise the dry seasons are the norm with a bit of very wet periods interspacing that. In the old days, you used to just keep an eye on the stock and if they're in good condition, you just kept them on. Whereas now there's much more recognition of the importance of a certain percentage ground cover and other issues that involve land management like biodiversity conservation and most people now try and manage their stock numbers and stock condition based on actually monitoring their land condition whereas before they used to monitor their stock condition that used to lead to too many stock being run for too long. We've got three properties together which make up 130,000 acres, I'm still talking acres. We running about 1,000 to 1,500 head of cattle over that whole area. But Waterloo, for instance, which is one of our three places, it's about 30 to 40,000 acres. They used to run 19,000 head of sheep on that year in, year out, and it made a serious mess of the country. The whole push is towards better quality produce, better quality animals, less of them. So you've got a higher quality, product and chase premium markets. As the, the second generations were coming up, I think they could see that that just it wasn't the way to, to do it. And they became more interested in probably the more um, sustainable ecological of the business rather than just numbers and getting as many off as you can. And certainly people are more aware of the natural resources of the area and more conscious of the ecological side of, of things as well. Kazinaminka is um, a reserve as well as a station, which is a very interesting partnership. It is, yeah. and there's also petroleum, so we're trying to make it work, and uh, I think it can, as long as the communication lines are still there mm. and stay there. What does it actually mean for your daily practice? You, you run it as a pastoral property, and uh, well, being under the National Parks and Wildlife Act, there's certain regulations that you have to abide by, which you would anyway, because most of the, even though they probably would not like you to say it, most managers or most of the people that live in the bush are probably, um, I don't want to say the word greeny, but... <laughs> so the natural resource resources have to be an important part of their business sustainability, because without that, the grasses won't grow or whatever, so... They've got to look after it to be a viable business. Marie Norton, bookkeeper at Inaminka Station, which is part of the Kidman Pastoral Company in South Australia. I think the interesting thing is the uh, partnership that's occurred between the conservation groups and also the grazing industry on the Cooper. And that's really come as a result of the, the bigger threat to both of those agendas from irrigation and development of water. Before that, I think there was a large debate going on about the impact of grazing on arid systems. And there's a wealth of evidence about the impact of compacting of soil, where you've got a lot of livestock around watering points and the effect of that on long-term vegetation, its sustainability. Whereas people in the grazing industry are saying grazing has no impact and we're doing things sustainably. Somewhere in the middle, I think, is where the true ground is, where I think we, in fact, recognise that the sorts of level stocking rates that occur in this part of the world are very low, and so the, the damage is quite thinly spread. I think there is an issue around watering holes, and at times erosion, particularly during dry periods where you have a lot of cattle coming into one or two points for their water. But be that as it is, Basically, we're never going to turn the whole of inland Australia into a national park. And so we have to get comfortable with living with impacts that aren't sending ecosystems into long-term decline, because it is the water, in fact, that defines that landscape. 
and even at times where you do get very heavy grazing, the ability of seed banks that are buried sometimes 10, 15 centimetres deep in the floodplain to actually, I guess, erupt once a water is added is amazing. One of the worst days of my life was when I left. Well, I was, I was 80 then. And I was fit and I enjoyed my work. I loved going out. And they say up here, well, what's the difference? I said, now just stop and think, what's the difference? I said, I spent my life on the property. I said, I'm still well, I've had no ill health. I said, I'd get up in the morning and I'd, we milked cows the whole of our life. We had all our own, we made our own butter, we had our own milk. I don't mind at all, I'd love being amongst the cows, you know. I said, in the morning, I'd, as I told you, I'd go out and I'd go out in the paddock and I'd see a lot of cattle and I'd go to another one and some sheep, go to a trough and water hole and some more stock, drive around, pair a fence somewhere. I said, you know, I get up in here at this house and I said, I walk down and open the back door and look out and I said, I've seen the whole lot for the day. I said, everything's there, I've seen the lot. I said, there is a difference, and there is. It, it, it was strange, it was just, I hated leaving grandchildren and I sobbed my eyes out and yet once I drove away the chapter was finished and we opened another chapter. I think women are probably more inclined to be able to do that than men. Yeah. And then when I went back as soon as I got back and saw the land, my heart rather throbbed again. But yet when I saw it I walked away from it, I thought, oh, I don't think I could do it again. Been there, done that. Oh, it was too big. It was too big, yeah. When I was young I coped, but it got harder as I got older. Mary and Bruce Emmett, retired graziers, whose son Angus now manages the family property, Noonbar, on the Thompson River near Longreach in Queensland. You've been listening to Hindsight on ABC Radio National. You also heard the voices of Sandy Kidd, Julie and Ian Groves, Marie Norton, Richard Kingsford, Tom Griffiths, Paul Sinclair, Michael Cathcart and Tim Bonnyhady. Special thanks to Nora Brandley and the Lake Air Basin Catchment Committee and to poet and pastoralist Helen Avery. Technical production was by Stephen Tilley and I'm Gretchen Miller. The executive producer of Hindsight is Michelle Rayner and if you'd like to hear the first part of this program, you can find it on the net at www.abc.net.au rn and follow the links to Hindsight. Sometimes you forget how much it means to swim in a river. Caught between the sickle curve of a new moon and the evening star, in water as warm as flesh. Forget how infinitely small you are. The Gilgais are full and pools lie still in the secret shadows of trees. Sweet is the green at their edge and the smell of mud. <laughs>